to the Uproom Frisco podcast. To learn more about your Frisco, please visit uproomfrisco.com. Jesus is our guest of honor. He's the one who is deserving of all of our praise and all of our honor, right? Well, welcome uh, to Holy Week. Uh, if if that word seems a little alien to you, um, just get used to it because it is actually your identity already. Yes. Um, holiness is what God came for. It's, you know, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we would become the righteousness of God. Amen. And this week is so monumental. I've been looking forward to it a lot. It's, um, it's when we get to celebrate and commemorate all of the incredible events leading up to what would be argued as the greatest moment in human history, uh, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, showing us that we will never have to fear death again and that one day we will rise also. Amen? So Holy Week starts with Palm Sunday, which is today. We'll jump into that here in a minute. This week includes... uh, Gosh, so much. I mean, you've got Mary anointing Jesus. You've got the Last Supper, the foot washing. You've got Good Friday, which is the crucifixion and the resurrection on Sunday. And so it's, um, it's kind of like the Super Bowl for pastors, you know? It's like... <laughs> but I stand before you, honestly, with zero pressure, zero sense of performance, because... Uh, Jesus has already done for us something that we could never do for ourselves, and it can never be undone. Amen? Amen. Um, So what's cool, uh, I like to just kind of be cognizant that all around the world right now, there are millions of believers doing the same thing, celebrating what Jesus has done for us, what he has accomplished for us through his passion and resurrection and ascension. And so even though we're, we're in a room with a couple hundred people in Frisco, Texas, just know that we are knit together by the Holy Spirit with millions and millions and millions of believers all over the world celebrating the same father whose family we've been reborn into. We're part of a global community, a kingdom that transcends every nation's boundary. And it's just, it's wonderful to come together with some of our, our favorite friends and beloved family and, and, and celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Um, this isn't just a day where we celebrate the, the world being reconciled to God. It's a week for many people around us to be reconciled and redeemed into relationship with God. Amen? During our uh, Tuesday prayer sets, especially uh, in the Tuesday 12 to 2 sets, for the last month, we've been praying specifically that the whole world would get caught up, you know, wrapped up into the scandal of grace again during this Easter season, but especially our city of Frisco and the surrounding areas. I say the surrounding areas because I look around the room and I see Carrollton and the Colony and Farmer's Branch and Plano and Prosper. We're, we're, we're praying for... Uh, that the Lamb of God would receive the reward for his son. I'm tripping over my words. Holy Spirit. He would receive the reward for his sufferings in this place. And we're believing for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, revival, reformation, unlike the world has ever seen before. We believe that the river is flowing and the water levels are getting deeper in this place, which is evidenced by all the signs and wonders we've been seeing recently. There have been a lot of healings and 
just medical miracles over the last few months. And I believe it's just the trickle before a, a mighty flow of miracles and outpouring in his spirit. And I'm glad to be doing it with you guys. Um, we won't be preaching on Good Friday, um, and so I'm going to try to cover a lot today, all right? So let's, let's pray again and pray for me, pray with me, that everything that God wants to communicate from his heart would come out today. Lord, thank you that you live within us and that your spirit rests upon us. We thank you for the filling of the spirit. We thank you that you flow through us. And we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to be like a rabbi this morning, showing us wonderful things from scripture and showing us wonderful things about the nature of Jesus, the nature of the Father and the ways of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, I'm gonna to try to cover a lot today, but I wanna camp out at the foot of the cross with you guys. Um, I wanna be uh, saying the same thing that Paul said when he said, I've resolved to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I believe that when we are rightly seated in front of the revelation of the cross, it is um, unendingly amazing and deep and powerful. And if at any point in our lives we've become bored, I fully believe we've just lost sight of the cross again because the good news is gooder than you could ever imagine. You know, like he's better than we thought. He's even better than most of us have been taught. He, when we stand before him, we're gonna say, oh, I didn't realize you were that good. I would have done even more. You know, like we can't out risk his faithfulness. We can't exaggerate his goodness. So um, when Jesus knew that it was finally his time to be lifted up and glorified, it says, it says that he set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face like flint, which means he was resolved. Even though he knew what laid before us for the joy set before him, he resolutely marched into the very place where he knew he would die a horrible death on our behalf because of his great love for us. If you guys open to Luke 19, I want to talk about this triumphal entry this is Luke 19, 29 through 37. It says, uh, as he was getting near Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples on ahead. And he told them, go into the next village where you will find a young donkey that has never been ridden. Untie the donkey and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing that? Just say, the Lord needs it. <laughs> so they went off and found everything just as Jesus had said. While they were untying the donkey, its owners asked, why are you doing that? And they answered, the Lord needs it. And so they let, it worked, guys. They led the donkey, and this guy just relinquished <laughs> control of the donkey. And so they led the donkey to Jesus, and they put some of their clothes on its back and helped Jesus get on. And as he rode along, the people spread clothes on the ground on the road ahead of him. And in Matthew, it says that they cut palm branches down and laid it out 
And when Jesus was starting down the Mount of Olives, his large crowd of disciples were happy and praised God because of all the miracles they'd seen. So this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9.9, where it says that our Messiah, the king, would come riding on, on a donkey. It says it like this, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And when Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, isn't it just one of the most vivid scenes of the Bible? You, you can just see these people hear word that Jesus is approaching the city and they believe that he is the Messiah, the king, and they're, they're, they're filing out of the gates and they're laying down, they're like taking off their outer garments. You know, they didn't have a lot of uh, money or garments back then and so they're, they're taking off something that is highly valuable and they're, they're saying, we're not even gonna let this donkey's hooves touch the ground. That's how much we're gonna honor him. And they're, they're laying down their palm branches and they begin singing, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heavens, Hosanna to the son of David. They're proclaiming him to be the Messiah that they were waiting on. Do you think the Pharisees liked that? No, they were highly annoyed. And the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to Jesus, teacher, make them stop shouting that. And Jesus answered, if they keep quiet, these stones are gonna cry out. I just can't, I want to, like, there are so many moments, like, when I get to heaven that I want to see the DVD reel of, like, you know, the behind the scenes, like, go back over the history of mankind. This is one of them. I want to see the triumphal entry and see the look of hope and joy on people's faces. Most of these people were shouting and worshiping because they believed that Jesus would be the king that actually frees their country, Israel, from Roman rule, that he would be like a conquering king, that that's how the Messiah uh, would work. He would come and, and rule the nations with a rod of iron. So in their unmet expectations and in the slander of the Pharisees, that same crowd that was shouting Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a couple days later, they're shouting crucify him. The very people, that, that, that'll tell you just how fickle the praise of men is right there. See, they wanted freedom from Rome, not knowing that he was the king of the universe in their presence and wanted to save them from a much worse oppressor. See, Jesus wanted to come to defeat Satan and all the principalities by the cross and free humanity from his power through freeing us from our fear of death. But these people were worshiping, worshiping him, thinking that Jesus was coming to set free their nation from a physical oppressor. But Jesus had a much deeper and more powerful plan than that, one that would free all of humanity from the worst oppressor of all. I'm gonna blow through some of these like cool events because I really wanna to get to the cross. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple and he sees that they've changed it into a den of robbers. And, and you know, Jesus had a bone to pick with the like ritualistic system of the temple of the day. And, and really Yahweh just couldn't wait to be done with the old sacrificial system. He's like, you know, it's provisional and it's just time to go. Like the lamb is here, let's get rid of the doves. 
You know what I mean? Like, <clears throat> so after he had cleared the temple, we know that he gets anointed by Mary. It's just this beautiful scene where Mary of Bethany comes in and pours out a year's wages worth of oil. He, she pours out an entire annual income in worship on the Lord. And, and they, the disciples are indignant. They're saying, why this waste? And Jesus is like, leave her alone. She's done a good thing. She's anointed me for my burial. And then he says this, I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. It was actually Mary's worship that provoked Judas in this moment where he's like, I've had enough. It's time to betray this guy. It was Mary's worship in that moment that incited Judas to go and betray Jesus, but not before Jesus would wash Judas's feet. Could you imagine getting so low in your stature, having such a depth of humility that you would get below the person that you know is going to murder you, who was one of your friends that you've walked with, someone that you've served and loved? Could you imagine for a minute, Jesus getting beneath the feet of his very own murderer, not to mention that he's washing off the dirt particles that he spoke into existence eons past. But Jesus, knowing that the Father had placed all things under him, took off his outer garment, stooped down, filled a basin with water, and began to wash his feet because he knows, you know, true royalty doesn't have to parade itself. True royalty gets low. This is all at the, at the Last Supper. It's just, scripture's just chock full of these amazing moments. And then it's onto the garden where uh, Jesus is betrayed by a kiss from Judas, this friend that he only ever loved and served. And everyone runs away in fear. And Jesus is brought in for trial and he's condemned to die by crucifixion. Why does Paul in Philippians 2 say that Jesus became obedient to death? And then it says, even death on a cross. Why is it, why is it written like that, do you suppose? Because in those days, the cross was the absolute worst way to die. And it was reserved for the worst uh, civilians. It was reserved for, uh, I mean, it's uh, horrible, horrible torture. Jesus would be stripped naked, which is humiliating, and his skin would be stripped from his body through scourging. And, and sometimes it takes days to die by asphyxiation. You're, you're, just, you're suffocating because your, your lungs are collapsed in by your rib cage hanging from the nails and your hands on the cross. It's just awful. I mean, the cross was born from the darkest corner of the mind of man. That Jesus, the, the reason Paul says even on a cross, it's because it is so audacious and scandalous that the king, the most high, would die in the most low way. It is so scandalous that the cross, which was the, the worst instrument of torture, 
would be redeemed and turned into something that represents eternal life. The object that represents our worst hatred would be redeemed and turned into the thing that represents the deepest love. Beloved, you know that wearing a cross around your neck is like wearing an, an electric chair or an execution needle. That is the power. He submitted to our worst. They made Jesus carry his own cross. And above the cross, Pilate, he had this sign created and it said, Jesus, King of the Jews, in the three major languages at the time. Um, but it's arguably four languages because when you read the account in John, John uses uh, the word, I, I had to write it down because I'm, I'm no Hebrew uh, scholar, but John uses the word Hebraiasti, which uh, actually means the Jewish dialect of Aramaic. So arguably, Jesus has a plaque above his head that reads, Jesus, King of the Jews, in three, possibly four languages, but definitely the major languages of the day. This is actually telegraphing the reversal of Babel when the languages of man would be confused and God shouted from the cross in a language that everyone would understand the truth in this moment. It's the worst way to die. In the English word, the word excruciating, it just means of the cross. So Jesus is carrying up the cross beam up to the hill of Golgotha. He was beaten so badly and so weakened that he couldn't carry his own cross. And so the Roman guards, they found this guy named Simon pulled him out of the crowd and said, help him carry his cross. You all know, I looked up what the words, the name Simon means. It means he who has heard God. I want you to just imagine this moment, like the, the, the weight, the depth of this moment that Jesus, again, the one through whom all things are made, in whom all things are held together, by whose word the universe is upheld, the one who spoke trees into existence in the creation story is now being crushed by the weight of one of the trees he created. And he couldn't carry his own cross. He needed someone like Simon, he who has heard from God, to carry it with him. If Jesus couldn't carry his own cross, what makes us think that we can? We need some Simons around us, don't we? So Jesus up on that cross, he's deserted by everyone except for Mary, 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 and John. Mary, the root word is Mara, which means bitterness, and God's favorite thing is to turn bitterness into sweetness, isn't it? And Jesus up on that cross, he says these heartbreaking words. He says, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which we all know means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have we heard these words before? 
Anybody? In the Psalms, Psalm 22. Can you put up Psalm 22? Oh. Y'all had a cheat sheet behind me the whole time. <laughs> Jesus it begins quoting this most, one of the most famous psalms of David. And I want to read through some of this with you and, and show you how Psalm 22 is basically word for word, a sequential uh, dictation of the cross. It's a, it's a prophetic, uh, it's, it's just wild. Let's just go through this. this. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you don't answer. And by night I find no rest. So this timeline right here, it matches the, the timeline of the crucifixion, which started in the day and ended in the evening. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. This is telegraphing the triumphal entry where Jesus is walking on the praises of Israel. Verse four, it says, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm, I'm not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. This is the feeling of lowliness that Jesus had in this moment. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And this is in quotations. So you know it's coming from a different voice. It says, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. This is Matthew 27, 39. It says that those who walked by looked at Jesus. They jeered at him. They wagged their heads and they were saying, you saved others, now save yourselves. They're mocking onlookers and they're saying basically, yeah, you, you trusted your life into the hand of God. Let's see how that works out for you. Come down from that cross and save yourself. This is verse nine. Yet... You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Beloved, this is a perfect picture of Jesus in this moment being surrounded by his enemies, surrounded by the, the corrupt religious system, surrounded by the corrupt uh, judicial and, and governmental systems of the day. And it says in verse 14, I'm poured out like water. Remember the, the flow of water from his side. And all my bones are out of joint. This is what physically happens on a cross. Uh, doctors who have thought about what could happen to a human body when it's hanging by, by nail holes at the wrist or at the hand say that every bone would be hanging out of joint. And my heart is like wax and m many people just die from a heart attack or from their heart being crushed by their rib cage being pressed in. My heart's like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue 
sticks to my jaws. Remember from the cross, Jesus is saying, I thirst. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A strong company of evil doers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Psalm 22 was written about a thousand years before Jesus was born and crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet. That would come about when the Romans worked with the Phoenicians to create this most horrible way to die. So thousands of years before Jesus, David, under the unction of the Holy Spirit, begins to sing out a song prophesying the way that the Savior would lay down his life for humanity. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. Fulfillment that none of his bones would be actually broken. They divide my garments among them. How in the world is David singing this? Have you ever thought what it would be like? I mean, he is just overtaken by the Holy Spirit and singing out the very sequence of events in the crucifixion. It's unbelievable. But you, O Lord, this is verse 19, they divide my, uh, 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Oh, it's starting to shift, Right? And now a different kind of prophecy is coming out. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. See, he's talking now about the heavenly realm, the great assembly. Jesus would eventually enter to proclaim the glories of God in the heavens again. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all of you, all you offspring of Israel. Verse 24, for he is not despised or Aboard the affliction of the afflicted, he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. He's not hidden his face from him. He has not hidden his face from him. So did the father abandon the son? Did the father turn from the son? Was this the, the moment in human history when the Trinity would break down and there would be a division in that moment? And there, you know, this, this is, Jesus even said in John 10.30, he said, I and the father are, are one. This isn't like something that was temporarily suspended on the cross. There is no way to divide Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John 14, 11 says, I'm, the, I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. John 16 says, he says to the disciples about the crucifixion, he says, you all are going to leave me. Yet, I'm not alone for my Father is with me. John 8 says, when you lift up the Son of Man, speaking of the crucifixion, this is John 8, 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, 
and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. This is the one who sent me, and he has not left me alone. Have you guys ever heard the idea that the Father turned his back on the Son on the cross? Where does this idea come from? Because I can't find it in Scripture, but I can find it in the human experience of brokenness when we give up on one another. And you might be thinking, but, 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 but hold on. Doesn't it say somewhere like that, that God is too holy to look on sin, like he can't tolerate evil? Yeah, it, it does. It says in, in Habakkuk 1.13, it says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You can't tolerate it. <sighs> well, that right there pretty much undoes the, this, the whole point of this sermon, like the, with one scripture, except for the scripture doesn't end there. It says, it goes on to say this, uh, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate it. Why then do you? See, this isn't some doctrinal dissertation. This is Habakkuk crying out in his darkened thinking, I thought you were like this. Why are you letting this happen? This comes from a false understanding of the heart of God. It's an honest prayer, but it's false doctrine. Here, here we go, guys. If God can't look on evil, then how did Satan come into his presence in Job 1? If God can't look on evil, then we have the biggest problem of all because we can't believe that Jesus is 100% God because he hung out with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And he didn't stand outside their door when, he, when they invited him to a party. He didn't stand outside their door before entering in and say, you're going to have to sacrifice a goat for me to come in there. <laughs> See, God can't turn his face from the wicked any more than the sun can hide from the blind. He's there. You might not see him, but isn't he the one who opens eyes? See, we came up with this idea that the father abandoned the son on the cross, and it's just completely anti-Trinity theology. It's anti-relational theology. It's anti-family, which means it breaks down the agreement and unity within the fellowship of the father, son, and the Holy Spirit. I've heard it said like, well, it's when the, it got really dark, like during the crucifixion, that's when like the father turned away. That's when the, that's when the abandonment happened. Um, but there are just so many scriptures all throughout the Bible that would say the exact opposite is true. This is Psalm 18.9. It says, he parted the heavens and came down and dark clouds were under his feet. Psalm 97.2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Deuteronomy 5.22, these words the Lord spoke to all of your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness. Beloved, when the earth turned dark is when Abba came closest. And when Jesus' last heartbeat occurred, it shook the earth with an earthquake and the tombs were open and dead men came out. 
This idea of the father turning on the son is more pervasive, pervasive and just like commonly accepted than you might think. It's, it's in even like so many of our songs. And guys, when I'm saying this to you, I'm not trying to like, I don't like run around thinking, how can I poke the bear and kick over a sacred cow all day? Like, it's not my, that's not my point of this. I, I'm addressing this false doctrine so that we can enter into a new level of joy and freedom and trust our father. See, we, it's pervasive, especially in, in America. We have this good cop, bad cop idea that like the only reason the father loves us and tolerates us is because of the son. The son is con- continually convincing the father not to kill us. Like, trust me, dad, they're okay. Like, like <clears throat> it's even in some of our songs, and I, I, again, I'm not trying to like ruin your love for any songs, but one final breath he gave as heaven looked away. It snuck in. And like, I love that song, forever he is glorified. I love that song, but I usually like change that line like, dad couldn't look away. Like, <laughs> like I'm, and, or like maybe, maybe it was so like dramatic that like some of the angels were like covered their, their, like their eyes with their wings like, I can't look, you know, like. <laughs> but the father was right there with the son. Get this. Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. So when he climbed up onto that cross, he met the Father who was already there. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says that God was in Christ. God was in Christ. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. See, Jesus was crucified in Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And today I believe that there are things in the place of the skull that need to be crucified. All right, back to Psalm 22. We're not done with this Psalm yet. It's going to get even gooder. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You know, that's Isaiah 55, not Psalm 22. (laughs) Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. So like there's a dramatic shift in the psalm that's happened, right? He, it's going from the cross, from the crucifixion to the realization that the father would never turn on him to generation after generations praising God in the great assembly. All the prosperous, this is uh, verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down and go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive, posterity shall serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. The last words of Psalm 22 are the last words of Jesus. It is finished. Yeah. 
Guys, finish, finish this phrase for me. Just sing it back to me. It may look like I'm surrounded See, we know the end of that song because I sang the beginning of it. What were the most famous songs of Jesus' day? The Psalms. So Jesus gets up on that cross and begins a song. It may look like I'm deserted, but it couldn't be further from the truth. It may look Like I'm surrounded by the strong bulls and snarling dogs, but I'm surrounded by you. See, Jesus, when he's launching out into that most famous psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is answering, he's asking my broken question. He's stepping into my darkness, my insanity, my rage. See, on the cross, Jesus became like this black hole, absorbing all the rage and darkness of humanity's sins, creation's brokenness, and escorted all of that into the grave. See, that mutilated form of Jesus became a mirror for my decaying body, and those thorns became a mirror for my confusion, my false beliefs, my self-preservation, my insanity. He carried our infirmity. And it pleased the Father to cleanse him of his wound. See, the great physician came to undo the greatest sickness of all. Now get this. Psalm 22 laid the groundwork for Psalm 23. If you look at Psalm 23, or Psalm 22 is the crucifixion. What comes next? The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know you're with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But it gets even better because then you go into Psalm 24. <laughs> who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who he who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false and or swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from God. Such is the generation of those who seek his face, seek the face of God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord. Strong and mighty, strong in battle. See, if you look at Psalm 22, like the crucifixion, Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death, you know that the Father never left Jesus. And then you get to Psalm 24, and it's the ascension and triumphal entry into the heavenly realm. And those ancient gates flung wide. Even when he went down into the grave, He knocked the gates off the hinges when he came out of that place, right? (laughs) 
See, Jesus took the lowest way to be given the highest name. A couple of Tuesdays ago, we were in our prayer set, 12 to 2, and um, I was getting wrecked. I had a vision. I was, I was taken to the cross again, and, and I saw his hands, the right hand and the left hand, and I kept on going back and forth in the vision from his right hand to the left hand, and I felt like the Lord was showing me or saying to me, whispering in my inner man, he was saying, this was the day that the broken, bleeding heart of God matched and mirrored the broken and bleeding heart of man, nailed together in the same place, was 100% man in whom are hidden all things, and 100% God, God and man were nailed together in the place of death, went into the grave together, came out together, ascended together. Beloved, today is a wonderful day to open our eyes to the gift of salvation that is in front of us. We're going to take communion together. Can I get my uh, staff volunteers to start passing out the buckets? so many things I love about communion. You can preach, you know, a hundred different messages on the, the significance of it. Something I want us to take note of today is that as we're taking the body, we are literally saying that we are of the body together. Like we are ingesting the body of Christ. It's as if in a way, mystically, we are saying that I'm, I'm eating you. Like your life is, is part of my life now. Like we're irrevocably joined. Your battles are my battles. Your victories are my victories. And then when we wash it down with the blood, whoo. You know, blood needs a body, right? Otherwise it's just, blood needs a body. Can you sing that uh, thank you? Can we stand together?